0: Hey, and welcome to the This Week in Games, a podcast series from the fine people of Deconstructor of Fun. The concept of this podcast is simple. Your hosts are Joseph Kim and myself, Mishka Katkov. The goal of this podcast is to highlight and deconstruct a few of the most relevant news in games. Most importantly, we promise to aim to keep these podcast series episodes short. So hit us up on Twitter to let us know which news topics you want us to talk about. And hit the subscribe button to hear us deconstructing the latest news. Enjoy. We are live. Twitter. Uh, well, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So welcome everybody. This is Twig number ten. Uh, I was considering that JK that we won't be in soft launch uh, by the time of ten. So I was thinking that this is the global launch of the podcast. But because we're doing it in such a ghetto style, so at the moment I'm both both of us are <laughs> are actually heading for dinner in the same location. Yeah, so JK Finland, uh, and we don't have the microphone. We don't have anything, and we have. We have just a half an hour to record, so let's keep this as the final soft launch episode, right? Yeah, sounds good. So, JK, how are you liking Finland before we jump in into the key topic?
1: Uh, you know, I, I love Finland, just, just just like the last time I came out here for Robiocon, and thanks again for, for inviting me to the conference. Um, you know, I I think there's a lot of great and, you know, talented teams up here. I, you know, love the, the, the weather. It's a lot better than the heat wave that we've got in LA, but yeah. <laughs> great day. I don't know
0: if you're seeing the same weather, but it looks like a fall storm, so I don't know if this is better than the uh, the <laughs> LA weather.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I got the good weather. And yeah, it is it is I guess it's a little bit overcast today, but otherwise it's been great.
0: Awesome. And and before we kick it off as well, we have to thank our our key sponsors or not even sponsors, but the the the, the People who make this available, and that's, that's uh, first and foremost, Sensor Tower, so for providing all the data that we need to make these analyses, And secondly, uh, Game Refinery for providing a lot of excellent qualitative uh, research and, 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 and just analysis on on everything and anything. So the quantitative and the qualitative data of those two are really helping us to, to do these podcasts. For sure. Without further ado, JK, what are we talking about today?
1: So we've got three articles lined up for today. The first is the Walking Dead developer Telltale hit with devastating layoffs as part of a majority studio closure. So it'll be great to go over that and see what happened there. And then kind of related in some aspects, uh, a second article, how do you evaluate a mobile game's profit potential? And I know this article in particular has had a you know, bunch of discussion in, in, in different forums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can go over that a little bit, and finally, from the world's top Clash of Clans player to game dev Space Apes, George Yao on getting a job as a product manager. And so it'll be very interesting to talk about how a player has actually transitioned into actually making games as well.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So maybe we could start with the first one, The Walking Dead. Mishka, you want to take it?
0: Yes. Yeah. Let's 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 move on with the uh, with the sad news. So. Um, definitely, okay, so let me just read through the news. So I'm um, quoting, the studio behind games like The Walking Dead and Tales from the Borderlands suddenly laid off 225 employees last week, leaving behind a 25-person tw- skeleton crew to tie up the firm's obligations to its board and partners. There have been reports of turmoil at Telltale Games in the past. Following the smash success of The Walking Dead, staff were subjected to harsh crunch time hours and a toxic work environment. The suite has also been plagued by financial troubles and has laid off staff in the past. In November 2017, the company announced that it was laying off 90 developers, roughly a quarter of its staff. CEO Pete Hawley then issued the following statement. It's been an incredibly difficult year for Telltale as we work to set the company on new course. Unfortunately, we ran out of time trying to get there. We released some of our best content this year and received a tremendous amount of positive feedback. But ultimately, that did not translate to sales. With a heavy heart, we watch our friends leave today to spread our brand of storytelling telling across the games industry. So naturally, really, really sad news. Not only in the fact of, of, the, of the closure of Telltale, which has been, you know, sort of a, a pioneer of story you know interactive storytelling games but also the fact that that the people who got let go the 225 it was actually even more in the latest ones that i read but all those people all those developers did not get any kind of severance and it was just abruptly ended their long career at the company and you know for some case long but but for others even shorter but still no severance no nothing and suddenly you're out of job and and you know in the case of us out of health insurance so uh a, a very very sad ending to, to such a great company. Now, I wanted to kind of look at, at you know, what were the real problems, why this happened. And, and you know, I, again, I, I dove, drove deep into the sensor tower data as well. So I was looking at the downloads on mobile. Of course, the, these games were on, on Steam as well. But on mobile, you know, Telltale wasn't that big of a developer. It was actually relatively small with the revenues between... You know, approximately 60 to 85 million dollars throughout their whole lifetime and downloads over around 150 to 145 million downloads. So in the, in, the, in the end, I kind of found four different issues that the company had that laid to this really sad ending. So the real problem number one, in my opinion, was that they were really reliant on two franchises. What I mean by that is they had an amazing set of of different games, different uh, storytelling games, with great IPs like Batman, Wolf Among Us, Jurassic Park, Borderlands, Guardians of the Galaxy, Monkey Island, Back to the Future, and even Game of Thrones. Nevertheless, if we look at the mobile revenues... 44% of the revenue came from Minecraft, and 21% of the revenue, of all lifetime revenue, came from Walking Dead. Everything else was really, really small, with with bringing usually less than 5% of the overall revenue. So we kind of saw that the reliance on those two IPs. The second problem was the lack of sustainability. What I mean by that is Walking Dead Season 2 made around one-third of Season 1, and this was back in 2012 and 2014. So in 2012, the season one came out. It was a smash hit. 2014, only third of those uh, of that revenue accumulated in in the uh, the second season. Uh, then in 2015, the Minecraft season launched, and that was their biggest hit. But in 2017, when the sequel to Minecraft launched, it it generated only one tenth of the revenue of the of the first uh, episode. The second prob- problem of sustainability is the retention of talent. We know that the people who made those acclaimed games, like, like The Walking Dead, particularly calling out Sean Vanneman and, and Jake Rodkin, the project leads and the co-creators of the game, they all left. And, and there was a really you know, noticeable drain of, of that key creative talent, which is absolutely crucial, not only for all you know, games, but especially in these type of storytelling games, because these, these people were unique talent. The third problem was the uh, velocity of development. Now, it took 20 months between the first Minecraft and the second episode. It took 18 months before between the first Walking Dead and the second episode. So, what we can see is that that not only the content—I mean, the content is great—but it's really expensive and to create, and apparently, really, really slow. And this this kind of you know there's another, art, another article on on, on um. On verge, that kind of drove drove deep into the uh, the issues inside uh, Telltale, and that was you know part of it was was really just mismanagement and and you know the crunching hours and everything, and that kind of led to poor planning and constant pivoting of the storyline. So so overall, the production was slow and expensive, and that's that's always an issue no matter what you're doing. And finally, the big problem was the business model. I mean, not only the fact that they all of their all of their um, games or stories, um, they were from 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 different IPs. And as we know, when you when you're working with an IP, you have to give them a cut. So there's that. Uh, so there's the revenue share, and then there's the fact that there was no in-app purchases, and there was really you know no updates. It took a long time before the sequel came back, and, and that kind of leads leads to to you know no retention because as you play the game through, you can play it for a couple of more times if you want to have sort of a different different endings and you do a little bit of different choices but essentially there's no updates coming in the game not evolving it's, it's not that you can keep on you know paying so essentially the team moves on to the next episode and the next episode and with those episodes bringing less and less money it's kind of not a good business model because you know it's just the the overall revenue from from one uh from one story is quite small especially if it's not a hit from the get-go like what happened to batman and game of thrones and a wolf among us, Jurassic parts and all the other other games. So, so that's kind of my analysis, JK. What do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the yeah. it really stands out to me the number of employees that they have relative to the successful products that that they were able to generate. Yeah. So, two hundred and fifty, or I've even heard up to two hundred and seventy-five employees against you know basically two titles that that had any scale. So definitely seems like there was a management problem in terms of realizing what's working, what's not working, and scoping a team that's appropriate to support the winners and and filter out so, some of the the losing projects and, and killing those off. Mm-hmm. And I secondly, to your point,
0: I think with um, IP you can't really kill them. Is, is that the case? If you make a deal with with I don't know with Minecraft and you make usually a deal for like three seasons, you kind of have to complete those.
1: Right, but then, then why do you continue to do Jurassic Park, Borderlands, Guardians of the Galaxy, Batman?
0: Sorry for breaking, but yeah, continue.
1: Right, so, so yeah, I think that that was one of the key issues. Um, also, it just seems to me that uh, that that point about losing sort of the two key product visionaries that were responsible for the main product, it you know, just just having two hundred and fifty people crunching and not having great products being slow. It, it, there's something that that just doesn't add up to me. So certainly feel like there was, there was definitely a, a management problem in terms of optimizing picking projects, but then also probably lacking uh, product visionaries who can articulate products that were going to be successful. And if you don't have that, you shouldn't continue to pump out products, in, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and finally, I, I think this is something that you know, is a good question to ask you is like, why did they not make the shift to an episodes episodes and choices model? Like clearly that model from the perspective of a company that is working on storytelling games, that seems to make sense. Were these guys sort of the classic sort of, you know, uh, artistic game makers that don't look at the market and are, and are, you know, very dogmatic about, oh, this is the game that I'm going to make. And that's it? Or I, I just don't know what, what happened because they were clearly in the driver's seat in terms of being able to at least take a shot at the the episodes and choices type of model and especially also then bringing on IP against that type of model.
0: All right. That's a great question. So why didn't Telltale go where episodes and choices went? So basically Nexon and Tencent. So episode and choices are both making about $68 million, uh, a month. Uh, so very, very, you know, net revenue a month, so very highly profitable games. Uh, and when you're talking about team sizes, well, to my knowledge, the uh, the episodes and choices, the team size is somewhere between fifty to hundred people. So, so you know, they um they rely on a lot of content, they rely on phenomenal editors, and they rely on on great writers, and and all of that kind of adds up in quite of a big of a team, and. It, and those games are, are really content treadmills now why didn't they move in into that category is, is again um, it's it's a really good question but um but when you look at that category you especially look at the ips so both both i believe both choices and episodes have tried ips and what they've noticed is the ips do drive installs and they do lower the cpis but they don't guarantee a positive roi so essentially what this means is you will get a you get fans of the ip but it can be difficult to get them to convert unless the content is really compelling and as you know in those games they're in app purchase driven so you kind of get into the story and then you can pay to get a little bit better choices to make as well as pay to to unlock more content as you play faster through the storylines and and also the the issue as you know very well with ips is is it's really difficult to advertise as you have to cl- clear all the content with the IP holder most of the time. So essentially what I mean by that is, is actually the IP might not be even a great idea for these type of storytelling games, even though that was the whole business model for Telltale. So, um, and, and finally, the, you know, kind of getting back into why didn't Telltale go in this direction is, I believe that, that it's just different of what they do. Even though the genre is the same, what they were doing is they were really focusing on quality, the animation, the graphics. You know, they were they were trying to tell not only a story, but a visual, well, you know, well well-acted story because the voice acting is actually really great in telltale games. Versus with episodes and choices, I mean, they're trying to hook you in with that, with the outrageous story where you wanna, you know, it's 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 kind of um it's it's not as graphical, it's mostly 2D. It's, it's really simple you make those choices all the time it's more interactive actually than the uh, the telltale in my opinion because you're constantly making making these uh choices <laughs> and um I, I don't think that that telltale game could have pivoted that much from from the production model that they have which is almost like screenwriting and, and movie producing to something that where you just tell the story in more most effective and engaging way so that's that's my opinion like i i don't think they could have convert there.
1: Right. I, I think I agree with you on that last point, which is the type of storytelling that Telltale had is different from the type of storytelling in terms of writing for monetization that that exists in episodes and voices. So you, you probably are right on that. Yeah, and, and also it just seems that, you know, fundamentally Telltale was just so defocused with so many people working on so many different projects, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, you take a company like Pixelberry, you know they're they're basically do or die on 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 uh on on their game and you know they're just completely focused on that product so uh yeah that's that's probably another another reason yeah why even if they tried it they they probably would not have been as successful
0: no it's just impossible to to ask somebody to lower your quality where you say (laughs) you know to animation team like yeah we know you can do great animations but how about we just do all 2d and you do like a minimum character animation. Uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't have worked. It's it's like the, the, the people would have revolted it because it's a it's against everything that that Telltale was, and mm-hmm. that was kind of part of the issue. Like that, what they were their product was not what the market demanded. Right. So so that's that's the case of of Telltale and wish best of the luck to the uh, super talented people and 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 of course if you're looking for. For you know, great storytellers, great artists, great engineers. Um, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure companies have contacted the uh, the people from from Telltale, and we're just hoping that they you know land new positions as fast as possible.
1: All right. Great. So moving on to the second article, this one was titled "How Do You Eval- Evaluate a Mobile Game's Profit Potential," um, and it was published in Games Industry Biz. But just to give you a little bit of context about what this article about is, is um, was written about, and it's it's basically addressing the general industry problem of determining how successful a mobile game project is when the KPIs are not clear. So obviously, you make a game, you launch it into into soft launch, you get KPIs, and how do you make that call in terms of you know putting adding more resources, developing features. Uh, continuing to add resources to the project or determining when to kill the project. And I really like this article because it, it really put a focus on a pretty common problem in our industry that I, I just don't think is talked about quite enough, which is, you know, when, when should you be doing this type of thing? What types of analysis do, do different companies have and, and what do they do to, to make these kinds of determinations? Um, and there was a, a pretty good quote in the article uh, that, that basically stated, in my experience, all decisions involving these ambiguous projects are made with the help of intuition, a credit of trust, or endless soft launches. This makes the process costly, unpredictable, and sometimes even painful. And and, and c- certainly that's, that's generally the case. And so what what the author tries to do based on this is um, well, I, there's there's kind of two main points that the, that the author makes. One is um, he makes a pretty powerful statement about how important marketing is to the success of the game, and stating pretty strongly that a game cannot be successful without strong strong marketing, which I, I think is a very good message because this is something that isn't quite. Understood as as well by uh, you know by a lot of folks in the industry, but but is actually very true. And and the author submits that um, from from the marketing pr- perspective, that teams should really be looking at uh, at two metrics. Uh, and the first are KPIs against video ad creative, and what that means is that you have your game, you create um, a video ad, and then try to check what. The conversion of players watching the ad is to um, players installing the game. And so, so he's suggesting that an install rate should be somewhere between um, you know, 04 to 0.5% uh, and implying a, um, in terms of the breakdown of a click-through rate of better than 1% and App Store conversion of 30 to 40%. Uh, although I do think that the App Store conversion is 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 a little high, but but you know, certainly he he at least he's providing some some benchmarks that you can, you know, check your games against. And the the bigger argument that he makes, and and you know, kind of the focus of his article is really around a metric that that was put forth actually last year by the Google Play team, a guy by the name of Adam Carpenter. Who suggested that you really that one of the key indicators in, ter, in in terms of determining whether a game is going to be successful or not is by looking at D one retention against the D zero minutes played. So the so if you look at the first ten minutes played in the game, and um, and basically graph that against retention, then you know that curve should should a- actually increase over time. And if you see dips or gaps, then that's when you kind of can tell when a game is in trouble, and and I, you know, definitely um, suggest that you you not only check out this article, which um, puts a lot of additional context around this, but also the original um, article posted by Adam Carpenter, um, uh, st- who also states some of the the benchmarks and metrics that that he found through Google Play. Mm,
0: mm. So. You know what? I, I really like this article. Like, there's it's it's really seldom that you see such an analytical article in the sense that somebody was, was coming in with a different metric, and then they're actually, you know, it's true and tested with with I believe ten studios that that mycom has tested this, and mm-hmm. um we were actually quite impressed by this article and created our own dashboard for our own portfolio using exactly this method, <laughs> right. um just to test it out, and yes and no this works and it doesn't now i think i think in my opinion like like based on on you know the dashboard that i'm looking at with with our own portfolio uh it does indicate clearly which which are the hits and we can kind of see through that but it's it's not it's not as clear like there are certain games that are definitely hits and and according to this you know we see some valleys uh, in the graph and you know according to this article those valleys are are you know uh, not, not you know the the marks of not a hit but in in our case it's actually you know one of our biggest games so right. um so i think what what plays into this is the genre as well like i i would like to like to see what kind of games they really put through this gauntlet uh the, the t-
1: my guess is probably casual yeah, games because, would be my-
0: because i'm looking at i'm looking at for for from everything from from you know um tile blasters to match 3s to to uh, bubble shooters, to RPG games, to um, ca- uh, uh, action puzzle games, to, you know, team-based tactical shooters. So I have a pretty wide selections of different types of, of games and different types of players. And, and definitely I, 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 I don't see this as the one holy grail of metrics, but it's mm-hmm. good. It's very, very good.
1: Right. I, I think I totally agree with you in the sense that this is a good analysis and it, it's, it's something that I, I think more teams should adopt, but to your point is not universally true. So, you know, just to take a counterexample, why wouldn't this be true? You can think of, and I've actually worked on a game that, that shares this, these kinds of characteristics, but um, there are some games out there that have really, really shitty short-term retention, um, and, and the theory here is that you know there's kind of like if you think of your top of funnel, and there might actually be a thin slice of really core paying players, but the rest of the players may, may just kind of you know uh, basically just 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 funnel out, and so like so you might have that thin slice of core players that have really great let's say day three sixty five retention, but Early retention, including you know the the playing behavior in the first ten minutes, amongst that other let's say ninety percent of the of the funnel may be really mm-hmm. bad, but if you can stick it out long enough, you'll start to see revenue stacking over time by that core slice. So I I think that you know while while the analysis to your point is 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 good and 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 is probably generally true especially for casual games just be careful not to not to throw out a potential hit or a potential winner just just based on this analysis and i also
0: have to have to give props to to one of our senior analysts and um he actually he built more graphs more approaches to this one so instead of instead of like looking at d only the d1 retention so the minutes played early on uh, we, you know, we built on something with only organic users as well. So kind of looking at that, then um, then looking at a little bit further. So D7 retention and kind of looking at the players who went through the D7 retention, what was their early curve? And we added a graph again. So this went deep. <laughs> so we added a graph with with players with the retention profile of D28. So meaning the players really stick in the game, let's they their early part of the game. So kind of like to your notion is, is there's this cohort, this, these type of players, you know how they play. So we rack those up as well. And finally, it's really important. If you do only one additional metric uh, to this and you kind of, you know, balance it off is, is, Build a, build a table as well for users by time spent so meaning how many users get stuck on the the zero minute the one minute the two minutes so the users that cross those thresholds and you can kind of see uh, where the big the biggest bottlenecks are as well and compare those graphs to to this graph of of retention by time spent so that puts in, in a bit of a perspective of uh, the perspective of those peaks and valleys. It's like how big they are in, in you know, in terms of overall users that come in from the funnel.
1: Got it. So, does this mean we're gonna be seeing a deconstructor of fun article from a Rovio analyst soon?
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be pretty great. Kind of like a, a, a reply to those, and looking through 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 our portfolio. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. But I, I love this this stuff. Uh, it's 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 just fascinating, and and definitely when when you see articles like this, just Put it to work,
1: right? Just for sure. Go for it. Yeah, I, I should probably give a shout out to to one of our uh, NBC Universal PMs as well. When when I brought this article to his attention, and I'm like, "Hey, we should be doing this," and then he kind of you know points points me to a link, and he, and he's like, "You mean like this?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> glad glad you." And then, and then he also pointed me to the original Google article, so that was great. Um, but you know, maybe the other question to ask here. Uh, just given that, you know, what what the, the fundamental, the higher level problem that we're talking about uh, is going back to like, so you have a game, you're getting KPIs, let's say they're mediocre. Well, then, you know, a question I have for you, Mishka, is this is one type of analysis that you can do, but then what are the other ways that you can think about? What are the types of analysis or how do you make that decision mm-hmm. in terms of do we invest more resources into the game project or do we... Sort of okay, so padded.
0: here I have to give a shout out again to Game Refinery. So uh, one of the approaches, one of the elements that Game Refinery tool allows you is it, it does this power score. And um, and what we've done is is sometimes you know it's it's not it's not a solution for all, but sometimes it's good at to look at your competition. And you know it's really easy to find find the games that you're competing against, even based on feature base. So let's say you, you're doing a match three. Um, and what Refiner does, it really breaks down you versus your competitors. And, and I think they have over 250 different feature categories. And it really shows what you have and what your competitors have. So if the score is similar, meaning that you're using pretty much the same tools, then the issue is probably the, the, the implementation and theme and so forth. So, so that's, 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 a, that's a more difficult one. But sometimes what those tools really show is that there's, there's room for growth. And it's and in a tool like Game Refiner, you can actually see uh, what your competitors are doing. There are clear screenshots, and then there's clear screenshots of, of other elements that you can add to your game to you know through different event structures and you know hundreds of different event designs and so forth. So that's the easiest way to kind of find some ideas on how to get out of it. Uh, you know, they might not be the solutions, but they are really good in, in sort of a, giving you that massive surge of data. Is like what should I really be looking at and is is there growth potential in terms of adding something to the game but um but but yeah um yeah that, that would be that would be that would be my my approach just you know analyzing what we have and is it is it far away from what the other competitors have
1: got it yeah and i think from you know my my personal approach on this is 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 basically you know to to really consider that this is actually you know as much art as science so for me, it's really about you know thinking about you know who is the team, what is their track record, what are they saying, and then to actually take uh, you know kind of a Zynga expected outcomes type of approach to say, okay, here's where we are now. The team has this plan. Let's look at expected outcomes against that plan. Do we think that the team can execute to get there? And then you know kind of weighing that against you know talking with the UA team to see where we you know where does it, where do ltv's need to get to um, you know how much are we going to have to spend to get those users and then if if we do hit in terms of expected outcomes can we have a profitable game yes. or
0: not yeah yeah you're absolutely right There's there's that and 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 finally it's the qualitative assessment you know you can play a game and and even if you don't see the issues sometimes it's it's just good to hire a consultant and you know we're not we're not selling the dof service here but but there has been um the other you know a lot of you know big companies that that have used some of our uh, folks at, at DOF to to you know to come in and do a sort of a deconstruction of their game, uh, and, and you know we've gotten a lot of positive feedback because sometimes you're just so deep in in, in your in your game that you kind of don't see the angles, and then you, you know you just it's it's hard to be as critical towards it. So sometimes it's good to get fresh eyes on it. And You don't have to you know you don't have to use consultant whether you have good friends who, who are in the games industry and they can give you that objective feedback. But what I've personally noticed and I've used consultants myself as well is that it gives that outsider view to the team and, and, you know, it's analytical The consultants not tied to anything that, that it, it, the consultant is not going through the bullshit organization, you know, politicking <laughs> politics <laughs> uh, and, you know they can shoot straight, so so that could be as well uh, a, a tool to to kind of shake up before you make the decision to kill. Because you know when you have a game in soft launch, just it's so close, it's so close. Is if they like
1: right, you're you're saying there's like an emotional attachment by the, the team. Uh, they may not be looking at things objectively. So to get sort of an external view, whether that's internal or from outside of the company, but getting that that sort of external yeah. audit that's that could be uh, potentially yeah, more right. impartial exactly basically- and, I, and
0: i've used i've used, used also uh those user research companies you know uh where you get a lot of people in they talk about your game i haven't found them to be that useful honestly i've i've, I've been more um i've found more help from just straight up games consultants uh if you can find a you know a few good ones that that's that usually works it's just you know, somebody who the team trusts, you know, somebody who, the, who whose opinion they value. That person spends, you know, a few days with with the team or through a longer period of time of, of, of different questions and so forth. Uh, usually it lasts between a week to, um, to a few weeks. Uh, and yeah, that, that that usually gives the final sort of a qualitative uh, answer on, on where to move forward. So all of those are, are just tools in the toolbox. So as we know, sometimes the game just doesn't work. Uh, and that's, and that's fine. But given, you know, we've seen like Brawl Stars being in soft launch for over a year and a half. And then, you know, King is launching tons of, not tons, but few new games, despite them not being $1 billion games. Uh, it just, it just shows that, that um that we're kind of living in a different era. Now, it, like everything is not a hit, a massive hit that we launch, And then actually we're, we're just launching games, trying to grow them. So, so definitely use all the tools in the toolbox to, to get through that soft launch and and into the global launch and and keep growing the game
1: okay last article Uh,
0: last one okay then we're out for dinner (laughs) okay
1: (laughs) so so this one
0: was the uh the the space ape uh space apes george yao or um his player name is like jorge yao or something like that uh i actually remember this player i i remember him i remember he crossed like four thousand trophies which at the time we thought was impossible to do in in Clash of Clans, like like mathematically impossible. And this guy did it, and just you know, he was he was the best the best player in the game. And um and this article uh, in Pocket Gamer is is basically uh, jobs in game series. So where a person from a certain company you know explains how they got that job and how you can get you know job in that developer. So uh, this person, George Yao. Um, is is an esports star. I don't know if he's an esports star. He was a clash a clan star. Uh and and um he currently serves as a product manager at the London-based mobile games developer Space Ape, also known as as Little Supercell. Uh, <laughs> at least how that's how they position. That's not that's that's not a knock on that. They want to be that. So it's it's great. Uh so it's just but you know, it's funny. Uh anyway. Uh, so they hired this George Yao as um as a marketing stunt, and he was he was there to to kind of join Samurai Siege, which was the the rival, the second game to, after Clash of Clans. So Clash of Clans was Samurai. It's not a bad idea. Zynga came up with that uh, that game as well. Just went to Facebook. Anyways, so in the beginning, he gave some advice on how they could how the Space 8 team could make the game appeal more to players uh, like himself, so crazy whale, super hardcore players who really you know wanted that competitive experience. And then as the time passed, he actually moved to London and started working as a community manager for SpaceApe. Uh, through the time, he progressed to a PM role uh, as the uh, as the original team moved on to the next game. And if you don't know how Space Ape, I don't know how, if they used to operate this way, but they kind of positioned them before the Supercell acquisition, they kind of positioned themselves as a company that as 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 the uh the pound for pound grade of lean live ops so so they are they're known for all, all those you know amazing tools where where essentially a game team can run a game without any engineer so that the engineers can move on to the next game and kind of build something uh, and then these small teams can be run with about four people you know a community manager a pm um you know maybe an artist and um an analyst or something like that like just tiny teams that can Run live ops because the tools are just so great. So uh, this also means that that when when you're working in a tool so small, there's no job you know specs, and and you're kind of doing what needs to get done, and you learn a lot. So the question, you know, the question is, what was the question, J.K.
1: Uh, I well, I mean, I, I think <laughs> not not really so much of a question, but'd it'd be it'd be you know good to kind of understand uh, what this article is about. But I do think that this particular situation does raise a lot of um, a lot of interesting questions about, For example, so we have a player, and now he's leading a game project as, as a pm. So I for me, a couple of interesting things to to ask them would be, this guy has is come from a player uh, so he clearly knows the game very well but is this the right approach in, in terms of like what do you think it takes for a pm to be successful at his or her job now clearly one of the the aspects of of that is is knowing a game really well but you know what just in general what what do you think are other qualities that Will allow you to be successful mm-hmm. as a PM, mm-hmm. and um, should we be relying more? Because when you look at a lot of PMs, uh, you know, in San Francisco or in LA, there's a lot of, uh, for example, you know, business school guys. Is is that the right approach? Should they be quantitative? Should they know the game better? Or like, what what does it take? And so maybe we can we can lead there with um with us getting your take in terms of you know what does it take to be a successful p.m okay. what are some so some of i'm gonna start first
0: by not taking any way for anything away from george Yao because i did my research okay. the guy has a finance background so so let's let's just, let's just cross that <laughs> off the list so he's not a player okay uh, <laughs> he's a clearly okay. a super smart guy super competitive guy so so um definitely earned his position and so forth so nothing taken out of uh you know why he's doing this anyway uh let's talk more about the role of a product manager so the role of a product manager is res- you know, there's there's few things. So number one is you drive the product requirements and feature roadmaps from concept through delivery. You build, own, and ma- maintain quantitative models used to manage game engagement, business performance, and that kind of leads you to being the person who's setting the KPIs. Of course, together with marketing, together with the, with the uh, with with whatever leadership you you have in your studio or in your company. There's the element of owning and analyzing game metrics. And there's the element of proactively identifying and implementing optimizations to player experience and core financial performance. And finally, it's a collaboration and partnering extensively and effectively. So, you know, when you look at these kind of like basic requirements, of course, you assume that a person with a business background should should be in this role because it's not as design heavy. It's not as creative. It, it focuses a lot on the numbers and through that it focuses on what to influence how to minimize the risks and and how to push forward to increase the kpis and and you know analyzing and communicating and partnering those are all business aspects so i wouldn't i i agree that that uh, you know the the normal pm has some kind of business background uh financial or or quantitative background and and i think that's that's uh that's the way it should be it's it's just it's those type of people you tend to be. Um, I would say they tend to be less risk averse and more benchmark heavy, because that's the way business schools teach you, and that's the the, the, the sort of a problem solving skills you're looking for. A PM is somebody who can who can bring a lot of examples and who can you know quantify them and and, and deconstruct them to a, to a to a point. But let me answer the uh, the other part of your question: is like what does it take to be a successful PM? Like what are the uh, the the uh, the um, the elements of it, and I think this is a very difficult question because there's, you know, a lot of different type of PMs. As it require, it depends a lot on the organization where the PM is working. But in the sense, you can kind of bundle it up to to kind of five different things. So, number one is is sort of a. I don't want to use these these words that I put in my notes, but but um, number one would be the sort of like systematic working process, and that that means that you know you hypothesize you prioritize you execute and you analyze so so you use data a lot and and you're able to use the data to to identify small tweaks and small elements that the team has has looked at it's something that 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 looks too small from a team but you're able to analyze and hypothesize and see how it really affects by changing this you actually make big changes so in in a way it's it's using data to find a low hanging fruit so that's number one thing Number two is is breaking down the sort of a big targets to uh, to smaller targets. So, for example, a lot of the times, uh, PMs and, and you know business leads, we we also we always have this this sort of a revenue target that you have to achieve, like double the revenue or you know increase the increase the growth and so forth. They're very high level, and a good PM is able to break down that goal of, let's say, doubling revenue into like, well, let me see first where the revenue comes from. Then instead of optimizing just, you know, just tackling this big goal you're kind of starting looking at the new versus repeat buyers the source of, of revenue in terms of the volume or the gross revenue you're starting to look at the diu of your game because naturally the more players you have the more revenue you have so so the retention curves the new users the conversion points so uh, a person who can break it down those those really really big targets into smaller targets and then put it put them into a roadmap and, and really optimize and you know hypothesize prioritize execute and analyze through those so so that's a that's a big element that that is required from a pm number three is the uh the really the collaboration and partnering skills which which in, in other words is, is more like telling a story about the game through numbers so this is this is just important in, in larger organizations or or even midsize where you can communicate internally upward and downward so you're able to to turn those numbers turn those small goals into actually something that 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 you know people can can understand and people can get behind with and and you need a lot of especially with modern free to play games you need a lot of support from various teams and and telling a number telling the story through numbers is just very important in that element uh, number number 4 is is in my opinion this is important and that is you know there's only a limited amount of knowledge that we can have ourselves so so kind of ability to leverage the knowledge of their peers is 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 crucial there are services like you know we said too many times now game refinery i just had a demo with them that's why it's costly in my mind but but that's definitely one of those elements where you you're not able to play all the games and not able to be you know master in everything like georgia is probably amazing in building battle games and strategy games and something else but but he may not 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 have that that intricate knowledge in some other genres like like, you know, puzzle genres or RPG genres. I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing. So what I'm saying is like it's impossible to have infinite amount of time and, and you kind of have to be master at some and understands others. And, and in that case, really, you know, leveraging that knowledge of the peers is important. And finally, it's really important that PM's role is to understand why do people like different type of games. So we, I mean, we as a PM, I used to be a PM for a long time, but but quite often as a PM, it's, it's just like you're not as attached as others to a specific genre. Like I only play MOBAs. I love MOBAs. I don't want to think about anything else. It's more like you're taking a little bit, little bit more objective or calculated approach to different game genres and really understanding what makes them good instead of you know being a fan of, of one thing and that's all you play and of course we do have our our favorite games but we we also try to we try to just understand how how users why they like something that's that's really important just just the metrics and and the the clear analysis of of the why's instead of, of like i don't like 4X so i don't want to even talking about it so is that a good answer
1: uh, yeah, I th- I think that, that that is good. I probably the one thing I, I, I we should probably add, though, is that in terms of the PM that you're talking about, sounds like you're you're talking about um, what, what I would call a, uh, you know, PM driven organization uh, versus, let's say, a producer driven organ- organization. What I mean by that is like, you know, who's making product calls or who's helping drive you know, the the product roadmap in terms of features and, and, and things like that. So so maybe the higher level conversation to also have is in, in the context of someone like George Yao, um, there are some PMs that weigh in on features and, and uh, the product itself. And there are some PMs, um, especially from like uh, teams that are console organizations that basically just focus on data. Right. And so they might just be SQL monkeys pulling queries and things of that nature. And, and, And so like, you know, it it might also just make sense to talk about the different kinds of PMs out there, but yeah, certainly um, for, for a PM driven org for the, for the type of um, for, for a type of team, like you have to think about the structure of the team and what the, what kind of um, you know uh, capabilities and uh, scope of work that that PM has. But yeah, so I, I guess that, you know, to, to I think in, in terms of what you're talking about, especially if George Yao also has he's got the product knowledge and he has a financial background, so he's quantitative for that type of work, sounds like he would probably be a good fit. George
0: Yao is great. Let's just end up with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: um, and so yeah, and then and then you know, in, in terms of like what does it take to be a good PM? Uh, so I guess it would depend. It would depend on the type of organization that that you join and the type of team that you join. It's it's sort of funny because when you think of you know GRI kind of is out of business now, but when you think about Gree, um PMs at GRI actually were very different. So even within the same organization, what it means to be a PM could could actually be very different. And so like. I think on the GRI side, a lot of PMs were more focused on SQL queries, more focused on data and analysis. Whereas on the Funzio side, you have some of the original PMs, guys like Dan Chow and guys like that, where PMs meant literally doing almost everything. So you know, you're writing specs, um, you're analyzing the data, you're you know, you're you're making product decisions, um, you know, you're you know, you're responsible for events and sales and merchandising and you're, you're kind of doing a little bit of everything. So, so definitely, you know, and probably worth uh, another podcast in the future or a deconstructor of fun article in the future, but, but definitely like, um, a lot of different, uh, sorts of that's types true. of PMs but out there the as well.
0: For, that's true. Everything but We have different designers.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think you, you did a yes. podcast on, on designers, right? Yeah, so for anyone who hasn't listened to yeah, that, go, go back and listen to that as I don't remember well. the name.
0: All right, Jacob. we're done. We were supposed to do this in 30 minutes. It's 47 minutes long already, so we always hit it over <laughs> out of the park or over time. Either way you want to take it. <laughs> and um, I guess I'll see you right. soon. And just let me put this podcast to our dear listeners. And um, next episode, Twig Eleven, we'll be out of soft launch. We'll be using real microphones, and we'll maybe even promote this this uh, series. But but again, thank you, thank you to everybody who's been listening, and we'll be racking up more and more and more listeners. And what's more interesting is is not only that we're getting more listeners, but it seems like all the listeners are going back and listening to everything that wasn't before. So. So this is, uh, so it's not just that the new episodes are getting more listeners. It's all of the episodes are getting more listeners. So, so thank you everybody for, for, for this kind of amazing, uh, listener behavior and, 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 um, to, yeah, to, to, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, it's awesome. I love it.
1: Great. All right. Bye everyone. See you at dinner, Mishka.